0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast that explores radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with James Schneider about how the left can organise and win in the coming decade. But before I move on to that conversation, I'd like to say thank you again to everyone who listened to the Object Relations series. I'm really pleased with the response and would love to build on those conversations in one form or another. If you'd like to see that happen and would like to support the podcast, please subscribe and share these episodes. And please consider going over to the website and signing up to support Red Medicine for one pound a month. The website is www.redmedicine.xyz. James Schneider co-founded Momentum in 2015 and went on to serve as Jeremy Corbyn's spokesperson and Head of Strategic Communications. He is now the Communications Director for Progressive International and the author of the recently published book, Our Block, How We Win, available now from Verso Books. In this conversation, I asked James about the growing strength of the left, the importance of solidarity and collaboration across movements, and the role that care and medicine can play in a socialist strategy. So you open the book by arguing that the left in the UK sort of feels like it's weaker than it is and it's over-identified with the defeat of the Labour defeat in the 2019 election. And I thought I would start by asking you why you're so convinced that the left is actually a fair bit stronger than maybe it feels like it is at the moment.
1: Well, the thing with writing a book is that you finish writing it quite a long time before it comes out. (laughs) And, you know, when I first wrote the essays, which would become the book, which was in, let's say, December 2020, we were really miserable. And then when I actually wrote the book was probably mainly in early December 2021. And, uh, you know, we were still pretty miserable (laughs) then. And, you know, there wasn't very much strategic debate. And, you know, there was less organising. There wasn't very much hope. And hopefully what's been happening over the summer and what we're gearing up to in, this, in the autumn shows that what I, was, what I was writing then was right. I think it's even more so than, you know, than we realize, which is if you start from the larger base, is there a majority in the country that want progressive solutions to the problems of the day? And the answer is overwhelmingly yes. On basically every issue, the public, a supermajority of the public, is pretty much to the left of, e- of where Corbynism left off. You look at how, what people think about, say, fifteen pound an hour minimum wage, what they say about wealth taxes, what they say about the solutions to uh, the cost of living crisis, public ownership, and so on. So there is a kind of nascent social democratic common sense in the country, which is borne out by most of the opinion polling and, and social research then on top of that you have not only strengthening and strengthened social blocks from where they were seven years ago progressive social forces so that means trade unions campaign groups social movements political organizations on the left and not only are they stronger than they were you know let's say 10 years ago some of them you know some of the major players didn't exist 10 years ago extinction rebellion just Stop Oil, Friday to Future. You know, the whole climate movement is, has been turbocharged in, in recent years, and, and thank goodness for that. So they're each individually stronger, and also they are coming together a bit, or there is some ability to touch base. In part, I think, because there is... Corbynism did provide a network of activists who now are somewhat dispersed the different bits of our various movements, but they can still touch base with one another. And then on top of, you know, and then in a smaller, circle, so you've got um, a much larger than before, still relatively small compared to our opponents, you know, but a, a decent number of now pretty skilled up activists and, and operatives and, uh, and organisers who could work to bring that together. What we don't have is either is yet a shared horizon that everybody can work together, a shared banner that everyone can come underneath, or a singular leadership, whether that would be collective or federated which is more what I'm arguing for or individual, so it can't it doesn 't yet have political expression and some people you know people are understandably oppressed about that you look at the state of, of politics of Westminster politics today and it just feels so unbelievably removed from where the movements are and, and where the struggle is and where reality is actually for most people. but I think that obscures the fact that There are those strengths, those resources across the left movements that, given the right circumstances, given the right contingencies, given the right organising and bringing them together, you know, I think some really surprising things could happen in the next few years.
0: Mm. And that question of what the left actually is has come up a couple of times in, in quite recent conversations, actually. And it's something you kind of outline really well in the book. And maybe it's the same, maybe it's not quite the same as this idea of the uh, progressive majority. But could you talk about some of the demographics and social forces you see as making up the left in the UK specifically? Yeah,
1: I mean, they're two slightly different things. I mean, the the left is more, I suppose, the, that section of, of society that views themselves politically, which... You know, so it's like the left is trying, should be trying to organise a social majority. That's our aim. Our aim is a social majority. It's not to just expand the pool of people that self-identifies as being on the left. It is increasing the power of the social majority in Britain to run as much of their own lives as possible. That's what real democracy would be. There are a number of different, you know, social groups, social blocks that can be brought together. So we have, of course, the trade union movement. But the trade union movement ha- has been greatly you know, reduced, of course, over the last forty years. Although bright spot, um, each of the last four years we have records for trade union membership um, in the UK has risen. But those unions and those workers they impact a wider group of workers through either putting a floor under wages and conditions or having contact with other workers. Then their tenants. I mean, that's a very big. I think. Um, a big and growing social block in the UK. Of course, there are different types of tenants and they do have different class interests, but that's, you know, that's there. Uh, a lot of, or at least a, a portion of people who are, hold a mortgage, you know, they own part of their house, but the majority of their home is, you know, is a debt to the bank. That's a potenti- That's potentially part of the block. Then you're also looking at people mobilised by anti-racism, by feminist struggles and crucially by the by the green struggle, the ecological struggle. So you know, one very simple way to put it. I mean, this doesn't include all of the groups, of course. You know, there you'll have students groups, disabled rights groups, groups for the elderly and people who need social care, and and so on and so forth. But in the you know, in the simplest boiling it down, you know, what we're trying to do. I, I can't remember who it was in France, but someone in France said, you know, it's uniting. The struggle at the end of the month, with the struggle against the end of the world, you know, it's bringing together those things, and, and and that is, you know, if you think about who is covered by those two those two things, and bringing those struggles together, you have the clear overwhelming majority of people in Britain, and that's going to have divisions and fissures within it. But I think it's the you know, the job of, of left movements to be majoritarian and try to bring that together, because you know otherwise. We're not going to be able to take power in whatever form that means. And you know, one point that I, that I make in, in the book is, although we don't have the immediate horizon of state power like we did with Corbyn having the, the leadership of the Labour Party, uh, we have to maintain that idea. The kind of, you know, 20 years ago, it was a bit cool to say, you know, change the world without changing power and basically going for a kind of purely interstitial purely anarchist mode of mode of social change but like we just don't have we just don't have time for it it's not just that uh, the state is making some people fabulously wealthy and letting other people die, as we saw in the pandemic. Billionaire wealth went up fifty percent in 2020 when the global economy was being was being shut down, and millions of people died, and you know many, many, many more millions had their livelihoods taken away, and poverty went up, and hunger went up, and all the rest of it uh, on a global scale. But you know, and they're making life and death decisions about health, um, so that's important, but. The scale of existential crisis facing humanity. I know it sounds, you know, it's almost like there are no words for it. We are facing a civilizational crisis on a scale that humanity has never has never seen before. And it's not just, I mean, it's not just the climate crisis. It's a systemic crisis for the for the entire human system. That means our food, our production, our resources, our health, our life expectancy, our population, the, the whole thing is in a crisis moment and there and a potential breakdown mode and if you put that percentage any higher than 10 15 percent and it is i think much higher than 10 15 percent that should be you know that that should that should be quite scary and the scale of things we need to do you can only really do if we grab the, the the scale and the speed of things you can only really do if we grab the state I think the figure is six trillion US dollars a year is the global state subsidy to fossil fuel companies. Six trillion dollars. You know, that th- we can do as much cool interstitial stuff as, po- as we like, and if there's still six trillion dollars a year going to fossil fuel companies, we won't have grandchildren. Like, that's, the, the, that's it. So, you know, that's the necessity of, of finding a way to have a political expression.
0: Mm. So onto a more kind of light-hearted cheery subject I was going to ask you about labor. Yeah, yeah, great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I mean in the book you're kind of you're not agnostic but you're quite, you know, you have quite a practical attitude about the relationship the left should have with labor. Quite bluntly, what what do you think their role is in this movement?
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, I'll started off by saying I'm I'm still a, I'm still a labor member and I I will continue to I'll continue to be so. But yeah, I think it's an institution to be used pragmatically. It doesn't it doesn't define my identity because I'm a member it doesn't make me a cheerleader for for the front bench whatever they're they're doing. I don't think that politics and political parties should be um, support groups for different teams of men and women in suits and different colored ties and rosettes at Westminster. I mean, I think it's it's um you know, should it be a political organism, you know, rooted in people's communities and lives and so on? But I think that the question that lots of people have asked after the loss in 2019 is, you know, it's, it's, people have always said, we have to stay in the Labour Party. You know, stay and fight. That's the most important thing. Or, you know, the Labour Party is rubbish. Forget about it. Forget about it forever. And I think that question um, puts the cart before the horse because we had, you know, the left, we had the leadership of, of the Labour Party and we didn't have sufficiently strong and united social forces to win right or to you know to win office and then take some modicum of power and pursue some substantial reforms we didn't we didn't have the strength to do that so it seems to me arguing about you know the branding of the political vehicle before you're talking about the strength of the social forces that are going to be able to make it up and it's going to be the expression of seems to me to be the wrong way around i mean theoretically but also in the moment it seems to be the Totally the wrong way around. Like right now, if you, you know, took a room full of 100 random concerned citizens and people that are politically active in some way on the vaguely progressive end of things around the country, and you said, right, now what you should spend your time doing is form a new political party, set up all of its structures, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and by the way, you won't win any seats because of the electoral system that we have. You, you'd be taking people away from organising workplaces, organising the don't pay campaign, organize, you know, in the direct action climate movement, away from BLM activism, et cetera, et cetera. It would, it's, the wrong, it's the wrong use of energy. So, yes, you're right. Agnostic is not the right word. I just think it, it's not the right question. I think that the establishment is not getting a grip back fundamentally on the situation, which it lost in 2008. Financial crisis... It's the end of the neoliberal system and there isn't a fix, right? There, there isn't a fix to neoliberalism. The energy transition, climate shocks, debt overhang, um, supply chain disruption, all of these things mean that, that there isn't, you know, as far as... I haven't seen it, you know, I, I try to keep up with what the smart people in the in the ruling class are, are, are saying and thinking, and none of them have a plan either. So... The, the establishment isn't going to reassert control and the genie of progressive politics is not going to be put back in the bottle post-Corbyn, try as they might with their furious Times editorial pieces. So a moment will come where movements will be large enough and they will find political expression that may have come through the Labour Party, as it did in 2015, or it may not. But there's no point trying to guess because history moves in peculiar ways. You, you can look at its general motion and you can look at its dynamics, but you can't decide the contingencies. Now, Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't have been leader of the Labour Party if Eric Joyce hadn't laid out a Tory MP in a bar in Parliament, right? And therefore, the anti-austerity movement could m- go through the Labour Party as its political vehicle. That happened through contingency. It's a, it was a possibility. It was a latent possibility but if that had not happened it would have taken political expression somewhere somewhere else so my strategic argument is that we we should focus on the dynamics not the contingencies what are the dynamics that we can strengthen and stimulate so that when things happen you know they can happen to you know to their best to their best most progressive way
0: yeah I mean that kind of leads me on something else I wanted to ask you about which is the challenge that comes with building a A broad movement how do you make it possible to collaborate across political differences without one losing sight of a shared horizon but also without sacrificing any core values about what you're trying to do
1: yeah it's an art not a science I think but there are some you know underlying things you can engage in the first is that Effective coalitional work is verbs, not nouns, it's actions. What are the things that people can do together? Because you, you find that a, a really large, a much larger group of people, you can get to engage in shared actions towards a common goal. Now that, So that's situating your horizon. You just, in some case, it's how far away you make it. Sometimes you don't make it that far away because you've got something that, that can agree on that. And when people begin to do things together, that opens up new things that they can that they can then do together. So I think a, a lot of the difficulty when I mean I, and I do this coalitional or federative work you know both in the UK and and internationally and basically when when people talk about how they ideally want the world to be far in the future no two no two people let alone two organizations or political tendencies or whatever are, are, are going to agree. But having an argument about the manner in which X industry will be run in the imagined future is really n- not one for, um, you know, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to support X workers on strike, or you know, how are we going to take on Y company that is doing Z? You know, th- those are those are not the things. So I I think wherever possible, focus on focus on on uh, doing verbs, not nouns. And then the, then the second, which is about being majoritarian, and there's a very big tendency on the left to not be majoritarian, especially in defeat, is to, you, you know, it, you, it doesn't mean turning rightwards, but turning, to try to turn outwards for what your coalition is doing. You know, you want to try to, if you try to communicate in a language that you think will have the broadest level of understanding, it doesn't. That doesn't need to water down the politics at, at all. You can. I mean, you can do, you know, pretty hardcore, pretty hardcore class politics, pretty hardcore climate politics, whatever. In Anglo-Saxon words, you can. You you can do it in in, in things that most people will understand and get behind. But that forces you to. Generally, or gets you in a mindset where you're more likely to be majoritarian, who are less likely to say, "Oh yes, but what about?" We need to put in this extra thing that does this extra thing in order to keep this stakeholder happy or this member of the group happy. Like, if someone is coming to a particular campaign and their issue just doesn't quite fit in, you know, you can help their campaign in some way help their issue in some way that doesn't have to be to do with the main campaign you know not everything needs to be represented in in everything that's you know part of this it's not like we need one campaign that does everything there needs to be a number of different movements that are pushing for different things that can federate or come together on key things in key moments
0: okay i'm going to ask you the liz trust question now what do you think she might offer and how do you think her tenure might change the way in which we have to think as a as a movement.
1: Well I just watched her first speech in Downing Street. I'll go from the like banal to the maybe more structural. What struck me was how boilerplate it was. You know, it was just sort of boilerplate Tory stuff, really. And you know, recycled aspiration nation from David Cameron. It wasn't like Theresa May's one. I, rem- I mean, I remember watching Theresa May's one. I was um, in somewhere in the Momentum office and I remember thinking, shit, you know, this is she, her-, her or her team or whatever. Their understanding of where Britain is, what the challenges are, how to wrong step the media and the opposition and so on. It's pretty good. You know, you remember the burning injustices. She's going to be a different type of Tory, blah, blah, blah. You know, Liz Truss started with a peon of praise to Boris Johnson, and then you know went on with pretty pretty boilerplate Tory stuff. Also on the sort of more more banal end of the spectrum, she's quite weird. (laughs) Things things might be a little um you know things might be a little freaky, but that uh, into the more substantial stuff. And I write about this in the book. It's it's kind of annoying. Um, When I first wrote the book. Um, in fact, when I first wrote this bit about the... It was about Johnsonism. And when I was writing it, Johnson was riding super high. And I and I wrote in the draft, you know, basically this isn't going to last for very long and the other element, tendencies in the Tory party are going to reassert themselves. One is going to coalesce around Rishi Sunak and the other one around his trust. And then sure enough, that is what's happening. But anyway, the challenges of writing in the conjuncture. So my analysis of it is that... the tendencies within the Tory party now these aren't self-conscious tendencies I think these are these are structural tendencies they don't necessarily map on clearly onto people and organizations but you you can see them it's an analog to what we saw the last time there was a real um you know an organic a systemic crisis within British capitalism which was in the 1970s except this time it played out through the Labour Party because it was to do with social democracy and the crisis of social democracy and then you had The everything's fine, don't worry, let's just carry on doing the same old, you know, same old uh, Keynesian stuff, it will be fine, don't worry, which was the Richard Crosland, sort of traditional Labour right, let's call it. There was the, um, the system's broken, we need to radicalise the system approach, which was Tony Benn, you know, we need to move from top down social democracy to more democratic socialism and more state planning. And then there was the the world is changing. We should try to lead the change approach, which was Healy and Callahan, which was we'll adopt monetarism. You know, we'll we'll sound the death knell for Keynesianism. Callahan's nineteen seventy six conference speech, Milton Friedman's favourite speech ever delivered by a politician, and so on. And I think we've been seeing witnessing the same thing in the Tory Party. So you've had the everything's fine, keep on going. We can keep the system, basically is, but throw in a dash of either so, of social liberalism and, and Remainism and with you know, a sideline in, in attacking migrants, which was basically the Cameron thing. Or it's double down on the system, uh, neoliberalism is broken, let's do ultra neoliberalism, which was the sort of Liam Fox, one wing of the Brexit people, that's what they wanted. And then you had uh, the system's changing, but we have to lead the change you know, everything must change so everything can stay the same kind of people, which was what May represented and also what Johnson represented. And it's partially why they were at, were unpopular within the Conservative Party, because they did accept that there needs to be a greater role for the state in the economy and you can't just let inequality continue to rip and so on. Now, Sunak, I think, clearly represents the sort of Cameron-y type, like keep every, everything the same, sensible, orthodoxy, blah, blah. I mean, he, now he's Brexit rather than Romani, but he codes, you know, he, he's trying to code as um, reasonable establishment, you know, nicer end of the establishment kind of guy. Whereas trust is, is the ultra neoliberalism. And you saw that in her speech, you know, aspiration nation, massive tax cuts, business-led growth, blah, blah, blah. And so I think that's where all of her, her instincts are going to be. And the, but, the you know, the... The problem for her is, what's the expression, pushing on a piece of string. The, the, all those policy levers are tapped out. So it, it's really not clear how they're going to do things and, or how they're going to do it without generating massive social unrest. Now, they may just get massive social unrest anyway because of you know, social unrest is what tends to happen in any time, in any place in history when living standards fall swiftly for, for a big swathe of the population. So, you know, she'll have that big surprise, very old school sort of traditional uh, libertarian, you know, right-wing libertarian approach. But I imagine we'll also see some action to reduce energy bills through some debt financing, you know, part state, part corporate, part part parts to consumers or taxpayers in some form, because the political necessity is is absolutely there. Um, I suppose one more thing to say about Liz Truss because it is really rather a poison chalice I mean she's taking over a party that's been in power in 12 years that's seen living standards basically fall but by relatively small amounts you know year on year on year after that point and now you know the bottom's falling out and there's it's not a good time for incumbency I mean it, it will see that I think in you know basically throughout the world there'll be kickback against those you know those in power because it's hard to see what the basic solutions are within you know within the system
0: okay should we move on to some questions about medicine and health yeah let's do it okay cool yeah so I'll start with a kind of big question and then we can kind of go with it and maybe get into some more specific details I mean covid 19s happened and sort of changed a lot of things and I guess two questions really like one do you think the left has sort of sufficiently come up with a platform on health that has acknowledged how COVID's changed everything? And if not, what are the demands that we should be making with regards to the healthcare system in a kind of post-COVID world? Well, I
1: wonder, I mean, has COVID changed everything? I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm quite struck by how it's all sort of been memory hold. <laughs> yeah. You know how recently it was and um perhaps it hasn't changed that much has revealed some things has made some things starker but i mean i think a year a year ago 18 months ago there was a lot you know theorizing about the new security state from left and right questions of political authority and sovereignty in these uh in these times of times of restrictions economic thinking about basically post global supply chain world and uh, and none of that feels quite right now it does feel like that was jumping ahead of of really where the dynamics are going which is understandable it was a shock to almost everyone and you know we were we were running to you know running to catch up so you know I I don't know about that I think in I'll say one thing that is sort of specific to COVID that comes out of health and then one one broader thing the thing that's specific about COVID, and I don't think, that, I mean, the left at, at all hasn't really made this argument terribly well. But, you know, we've got mitigating circumstances. We basically were chased out of the public sphere during the COVID period because it coincided with the end of Corbyn's leadership. And Starmer would, or and his people would never say anything as sensible as what I'm about to suggest, but... And it seems to me quite common sense, right? The bits of the state, in Britain at least, the bits of the state that were most relatively insulated from neoliberalism, no bit of the state is totally insulated, but relatively insulated. The NHS, science and universities. Now, anybody listening who works in the NHS, works in science, works in universities, I'm not saying that you aren't facing privatization marketization cut up all of that stuff I know but relative to other parts of the the state and British life it's less and it was out of that that the the vaccine was produced same thing basically everywhere else in the world vaccines were produced in this um, state-led, coordinated fashion, and then handed over to private companies to make gazunder billions out of. And, and then their access restricted by those same big states through the, through the WTO, leading to many, many more lives lost, millions of more lives lost, livelihoods destroyed, a crime against humanity. And then you look at the bits of COVID which failed so dramatically. You know, test and trace, outsourced to Serco, like, you know, a running joke. The contracting out process, you know, all the the, the, the PP that didn't work, the the, the, the Tory donors, uh, Matt Hancock's mate in a pub, you know, all that kind of, you know, all that kind of stuff you know, shows that you don't get the public good. You get a kind of race to the bottom rip off, you know, a, a joke, a joke of a system, an embarrassing joke of a system that kills people and enriches a terribly small number of people and is basically a crook's charter. You know, that's what we've had, that's what we've turned the state into, versus something which is public interest and can be more strategic and can plan ahead. And I think, you know, that's one thing which does, does come out of COVID. Then, then I've got a different point to make which doesn't really relate to COVID, but about where health um, and care, importantly care, can fit within what the left and progressive end of things argues for over the next 20, 30 years. Our energy system is changing. It's changing because it has to, because of climate breakdown. It's also changing because lots of the stuff has been used up. So the lowest hanging fruits have been used up, costs of production are increasing. And fossil fuels are an amazing source of energy. The input output is incredible. Coal was revolutionary. Oil was then revolutionary again and, and natural gas revolutionary again. The input output is massive. That's a big part of the, the value question. And so because that's been cheap, everything in our system, the way we produce things, what needs, wants and desires are created. That Very importantly, built in obsolescence, our food system, everything is geared towards the fact that we've had this very cheap energy. And regardless of other elements, you know, why it's going to go down, how that goes down, that is, you know, the price of energy is going to go up. The price of energy is going to go is going to go up as an input within our society and our economy. So we need to shift investment. And investment doesn't just mean money, social investment. What, what we value in society, what we give time to, as well as capital, away from the most energy intensive um, or, you know, energy intensive per unit of well-being, if you want to become pseudo-mathematical about it, towards things that are low energy intensive intensiveness and health and care. So not just health in terms of keeping people healthy but also you know care beyond the physical care uh, mental social human these are things which as uh, you know as a society or as societies we should be looking to invest in much more the greater weight of our societies should be given to these things because they're relatively uh, non-energy intensive now of course there are certain medicines which are very uh energy intensive and so on i'm not saying that that there's no part of healthcare that is energy intensive and and we need those things you know i'm we need mri machines we need all of you know we need that but a lot of care you know should be something should be a thing that grows in our in our in our society in our economy and i think that's something that we that, that we can and we should put front and center because it's not a question of do things carry on growing forever, or we have our hair shirt—a very different thing. No, no, it cannot go on the way it is. And scarcity in energetics is going to be managed one way or another. It's either going to be managed in an extremely unequal, uh, often violent way, to maintain the wealth of the very few, of the or the wealth of the very very few, and the lifestyles of the very few, or it's going to be managed in a more collective in a more more humane way. And so it's not about us having less, we're going to have different, And I personally think having fewer disposable products that don't bring us very much joy or more unnecessary skyscrapers and so on, but more time with, for example, community groups where people can discuss how they're how they're feeling how their lives are going as a you know it's a mental health you know it's a co- kind of collective mental health exercise where as sort of standard we people are taught how to how to breathe properly and breathing exercises. you know things which seem to laughable that we would spend any of society's resources on doing these things but actually if you take half a step back and look at it you go well we would have uh, so you know, for more, it would provide more benefit for more people if investment were were going in that direction, and more of the economy, more of society, uh, were tailored towards creating you know needs, wants, and desires in those directions. So I, I mean, that's had theoretical and a tad speculative going forward, but I, I you know I think in the you know in the in the book I'm you know I'm arguing for a kind of red green banner. You know, we need we need social progress within the ecological question that's the question of our time the climate crisis is the issue of our of, of our time absolutely hands down but you know we need to rethink what social progress looks like that isn't more and more production but with a with a techno green hat on i think this is a we, we're we are unfortunate and fortunate enough to be posed with a truly civilizational question
0: i'm just going back i mean all those things that you listed i mean they're, they're quite popular already a lot of those things i mean a Mm. lot of a lot of people do those things just so they can do their job and not yeah you know jump into the tube you know like they're already really in demand things that people want to do before you've even kind of rearranged the site so people have the time to do them and not squeeze them in sort of two hours before they have to get to the office or whatever
1: well i I mean but but also do them not as a practice of reproduction Mm. for yeah for like being able to go to work like you know why do what why does someone do like take the headspace app thing you know that whole yeah, yeah, trend yeah. thing right I won't I won't slag it off at all because it it, it gives a, a large and growing number of people that little mm. bit of help to allow them to carry on in an often hostile and unpleasant world right but that's not it but it isn't the thing that it, it's not it's not bringing the joy and 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 healing and connection and all of that you know next level of stuff if you were doing it for its own sake because there isn't time for that so i think the fact that you know you go on youtube or or whatever and there are a million and one uh videos and people talking about you know this kind of stuff shows that there's a there's a desperate need for it in society but society isn't structured around it.
0: yeah i might be asking you to repeat yourself here but i mean i guess i mean what i was going to say is that you know there's 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 obviously a relationship between ecological crisis and people's health and well wellbeing. Uh, and maybe it goes back to that thing of like realizing how urgent things are because, you know, on the most extreme end of the scale is your well-being is not going to be very good if you have to live through very extreme weather conditions. And on the, I don't know, another point on that scale is things like air pollution and, you know, things that people have to really live with day to day and, What I want to ask is how could you communicate a positive vision of health and well-being and a kind of nice life, a kind of hedonism and a kind of luxury within a sort of eco-socialist framework, which would have the kind of broad appeal that you've been saying is necessary to build a kind of shared horizon?
1: Well, I hope this doesn't feel like too much of a cop-out, but uh, anything that I say is very provisional because part of the next book that I want to write and I'm trying to you know, gather my my, my thinking around, one of the three parts of it is basically precisely focused on this question. And uh, so I only have hunches, right? I need okay. to do much more reading and thinking and, and, and talking to other people, but my, my hunches are that luxury and hedonism are not particularly good frames things will be more joyous and things will be more valuable. But like, but, but I think just saying it's like the same, but more, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, we, I, I don't know precisely how, but we, we, we have to you know break from the idea that communism equals electrification plus Soviet power or, you know, whatever, like that's not like, that's not the formula Um, if it ever was the formula, but it's not the formula now. So, so I, I you know, I, I think something that, is rooted in people's deep desire to give and receive love and to give and receive care and to feel free and unencumbered and supported. I mean, those are the sorts of... Humans can be are driven by many different things and can be driven by many different things, but it, those are very deep ones, very deep, primal ones. There's big needs for them, and the not getting them also leads to very negative outcomes and, and, and behaviors and so on. So my hunch or a starting point to look, to, to, to look into it is there, you know, it's, it's what would be, you know, what would create people? It's, it's turning the the question around from, you know, how do we get people to create things, but, you know, how do we create, what you know, what things do we need to create people? Now that's, you know, that's, that, that's the starting point to think about how, what, that that would be actually be made up of materially and how would you argue for that in in a way that's both visionary in that it provides direction to where you're going but it's also concrete and it's not as airy-fairy as i'm currently saying but i think you know that's where it's got to to come from so that probably means it has to be extremely materially rooted actually you know it, it can't be oh you know have a nice life because you do your breathing or whatever you know like um everyone should do their do your breathing but i think it, it it does need to have it does need to have some some material basis because you can't have all those things if you don't have running water healthy food running water safety uh shelter you know without those you know without those things you can't have the other things
0: So one bit I really like in the book is where you talk about political education and the need for it to be embedded within political action. And a question I want to ask you slightly selfishly motivated about, you know, if you're going to do something like this, how could it be the most interesting, kind of most productive thing in terms of political education is sort of what do you think that could look like in a a medical setting?
1: So just to recap the basic argument, uh, again, after the loss in 2019, One of the things that was sort of fashionable on bits of the left to say is, oh, you know, we didn't have enough political education. You know, people weren't, you know, politically educated enough. People used the the fraudulent campaign of um, Keir Starmer QC to be Labour leader, not fraudulent in the election, just that he lied about everything. Uh, You know, the fact that people were taken in as that is an example of lack of political education, blah, blah, blah and it's true political education is an important thing and there needs to be and there needs to be uh, much more of it and there was insufficient amount of that that's true but i think that far too often and this is in part because you know the left after the working class and working class movements were crushed in the 80s who got driven more and more into academia and ngos is just really comfortable with um just really comfortable with seminar rooms and and nominalizations, you know words that obscure who the subject or the verbal, you know, globalization, automation, et cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. And I think quite a lot of the way people conceive of uh, political education is way too much like the seminar room. It's way too much like university. It's reading this and it's someone telling you stuff. That's not the only way that people do it and loads of people do good stuff in different ways. But I think that's too much the starting point. It's too much the starting point, like get book smart, you'll get better at politics. I mean, one, I think that just reproduces a problem we've already got, because the kinds of people that will respond to that, the kinds of people that are already
0: um, on on the side.
1: Well, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily already on the side, although it does have that tendency. But the people you're getting are people that respond well to particular types of academic settings, seminars, long long reading lists, and so on. And those types of people are already overrepresented on the left. Because the rest of the left got crushed and destroyed and the bits that that were left took refuge in, in academia where they've been able to reproduce itself a little bit. That's not me slanking off the academic left. Great stuff. I'm just saying, you know, you yeah. don't want that to be just what you, you know, all that you've got. Yeah. So, you know, what well, I think that, you know, what the, 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 mo- the greatest political education I think people got in the Corbyn years was when they're involved in a particular campaign and... You know, you see what it's like to be up against something, and then you understand it much more because you're, you, you know, part of it, you, you, you learn very fast. So, what I propose as a sort of model for political education is something which combines a campaign and activism with learning about something. So, if you're trying to learn about privatization and neoliberalism, you might focus on water and you might start a campaign against the, the sewage being pumped into the channel in Hastings, for example, and you might buy shares, you know, you and your small group of people that you can get together, build up a campaign, 30, 40 people, I don't know, might buy shares in the water company and then go to the AGM and stage a protest, film it, I don't know, pour muck everywhere, say that that's what they've been doing, make the point, get on TV and so on. And as part of that process, also be reading... Uh, I don't know a bit of David Harvey on neoliberalism. Finding out about how privatization happened, how the water companies were handed over with zero debt, the amount they paid off in dividends, and so on, and learn to make small videos about it. Learn to then be a communicator, not just oh great, you've got books, you've got info in your head. You learn ways to communicate out that information on social media, in public talks, whatever. And so, so you're you're building, you know, you're building real education for the people who are involved in that in that campaign is built into it and it's spreading outwards a worker on the uh, like go northwest in manchester is going to know way more about fire and rehire and why it's there because they've had to go through it than if someone had you know watched even a really good youtube video you know and if you have the people and you know if you can have the people that are involved in the struggle articulate it in a way that they understand and you get that out to people it's going to be far more politically educative and in a mass way and it's not going to get removed it's not going to be like the specialist thing that like the theorists do or 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 whatever I think that's how you begin to build up like a set of movements that's got really like deep knowledge and deep understanding and that you know loads of people can be winning people over in know pubs and cafes and bus stops all over the you know all over the country and then in the health context you want me to talk about in the health so right yeah there there are a lot of nhs campaigners and a lot of them do it do do really good work but i would say they struggle to get mass because they're too inside they're often too inside baseball i know uh, you know a number of these people get on very well with them i think they do really great you know, really great work. And without them, we wouldn't know half the things we do about the privatization of the NHS. But it's but it's you know, it's way too inside baseball for for people. If you created little campaigns in different parts of the country against the closure of a particular thing in a particular place, firstly it's broad-based. Everyone who lives in an area near enough, right? From your Tory councillor all the way through to, you know, whatever's at the other end, care about the maternity services closing. So you could so you get in, you, you could get in that campaign. And then through that, you can see why is it closing? Why are services all closed? What is the centralization? What is it, what is it about? And through that, a story about privatization and the the, the removal of the the re- reduction of the public from the NHS, about how the NHS subsidises private provision. So the idea that we need private provision to, you know, step in and help the NHS is a nonsense. You're just paying someone that would be in the NHS otherwise the private fee to do the, do the thing. Um, then you'd find the language that people, that people get. You know, then you'd find the, you know, the... The, the understandings of of these you know that can be quite complex processes in ways that in, in ways that people can really you know that can, can really get
0: kind of going back to what you were saying about since the books come out the landscape's changed a little bit we're seeing this kind of wave of movements uh, that are happening in the uk and all this excitement about uh, around unions not just in the uk but elsewhere and and you made that comment about um you know, you're thinking it. Thinking it's going to gear up even more so into autumn. I mean, what what are you kind of expecting? What what's making you say that?
1: I I think things are already so bad for so many people and are getting worse that there's uh, it's inconceivable practically that there's not going to be uh, resistance and organised resistance. And you know that's going to take. I mean, in fact, I know that there is going to be. And it. You know, and, and it will take the form of the four types of resistance that, um, that people have basically always used against power, which are withdrawing the labour, going on strike, not paying things, occupying spaces and places that they're not meant to be and not going away, and fourth, mutual aid, looking, at, looking after each other. And we're going to see all of these things really take off because i mean everyone is being forced to take a pay cut that's what basically every employer is doing and any workers that have any power which is a few in you know, like expert professionals in a few areas that they you know they happen to have a small amount of market power the occasional sector where there's a particular labor shortage for you know a short short term reason fruit picking or so on otherwise it's if you've got a strong union that's the only way in which you can have any chance of uh, of fighting back and, and not getting a whopping pay cut i mean if you know inflation is running at 8 will end up running at 18% or something and you get a 5% you're getting a 13% pay cut in one year in one year right and you know that happens one year that happens two years i mean you you you're talking you know almost unprecedented work, peacetime unprecedented falls in living standards for the for the majority of people. So people who can go on strike will go on strike, because that's the only weapon that 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 people have. The bills, they're already, I don't know, a million, more than a million now people who are not paying their energy bills. That's now, that's before the October rise. And that's that's going to go up. And of course there's the don't pay campaign. And what that's trying to do, and I, you know, I think it's going to be successful in what in what it does is it's it's turning those isolated actions are basically stress and despair. I don't have any money, I can't pay the bill into a collective action that, that puts pressure on the company and on the government. And of course it's fought with risk. You know, any of these actions is fought with risk because right, we, are, you know, we, we, we are basically under attack. That is what is going on. The majority of people in this country did not cause the crises that we face and yet we are being asked to pick up the tab for it. Like that's the basic condition. That's the structure of all of this. You know, the government wants to expand fossil fuel production. It's a death wish, it's, ins- it's-, 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 it's completely insane. It's insane. It is delusional, it is madness, it is criminal. And there are now probably a few thousand activists around the country who are willing to put their bodies in the line to, uh, to stop things. To to cause disruption to the fossil fuel industry, which is being subsidized to a tremendous degree. It's not just the 6 trillion US dollars globally, uh, but because of the um, investment tax relief from the, from the budget, the, the the new oil uh going can be underwritten to the tune of you can write off 91%. 91%, 91 pence in the pound of the investment. I mean. The scale of subsidy for for fossil fuels which uh, you know no one is saying you can stop all fossil fuels now you can't you can't just transition overnight to everything like that but very clearly we have to have a rapid direction of travel and that doesn't involve turning on new ones you just can't there's no math you look at you know any of the charts any of the scientists have uh, the more people that realise this is an existential threat to their lives, to their community's lives, to their families' lives, their children's lives, their grandchildren's lives, they're just going to do something about it. And so there's going to be more of that. And then because people are, are people basically want to, or a, a lot of motivation for a lot of people is to give and receive love and care. People will look out for each other. And so there will be, in every community in the country, mutual aid and you know of of all sorts so i think how that kind of fits into or you know more to the point how my book fits into that and the argument in the book uh, fit into that context is that these different actions they don't need to be one action they don't need one organization running them but they they should touch base they should not cut against each other we I mean, should recognize that the climate crisis and the cost of living crisis they are the same they are the same crisis at root and it's a crisis that is grounded in the fact that the overwhelming majority of people don't have power we don't live in a proper democracy where things that people want end up happening and if, in order to change anything all those different forces even though they may not agree on everything they may come from different traditions and cultures and types of politics and types of organizing and whatever they all have to come together to build power because that is the only way that we will force things and then out of that who knows what will happen that that could get political expression in some form that could challenge in some form things could move very very fast I think come come the spring depending on depending on what happens but I think you know that's that 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 should be our task now whatever Organisations that we're in, whatever space we're we're in in the economy, if we're a tenant, if we're in a workplace where there's a trade union, if we're a workplace where there isn't a trade union, whether we're carers, what you know, whatever role that we play, whatever our you know where our material interest lies, we should work with other people to advance our material interest in that, and try to bring those together as much as possible, because it's only when there is an uncontrollable cacophony that the government just can't do anything about that things will begin to
0: move thank you to james for that wonderful conversation and thank you for listening once again if you'd like to support the podcast you can subscribe share and rate this episode and you can go over to the website www.redmedicine.xyz and sign up to support for £1 a month. Thanks again.